Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, truth seekers, and truth crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise, and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership, Keith LeBlanc, a trailblazing drummer, composer and producer who since 1979 has explored and often fused funk, rap, rock, hip-hop, electronic, industrial, and other genres. Along with being a member of the progressive and experimental band Tackhead, he has released several cutting-edge solo albums and collaborated with numerous well-known artists. That impressive list includes the Sugar Hill Gang, Africa Bombada, R.E.M., Seal, Peter Gabriel, Nine Inch Nails, Lou Rawls, Andy Lennox, Living Color, Depeche Mode, and Tina Turner. Wow, <laughs> Keith, impressive. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Outstanding. And where are you today? I'm in Connecticut. Uh, Meriden, Connecticut. Um, it's sandwiched between Hartford and uh, New Haven, about uh, an hour and a half from New York City. About an hour and a half from Boston. So right across, right across the sound. My my wife is from Long Island. So okay, okay, yeah. yeah. It's, it's quicker to get there on the ferry actually, because uh, I drove there once, and I know why they call it Long Island now. <laughs> you know, it's never ending. Yeah, yeah. 
So how you been holding up uh, this year? You know, how's the uh, weird year treating you? Well, it hasn't been too weird for me uh, because I've been lucky. Uh, for about three years before this happened, I set up a studio at home and started working from home, um, except for teaching and gigs. Um, most of my recording, uh, you know, is by wire. You know, people send me the tracks, and so I've been able to keep recording that way. And uh, uh, my wife had said... She said, you ought to, you know, set up a studio at home, you know, and I thought, oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so, um, and it, so I haven't really changed much of what I'm doing except when I go out, you know, and I don kind of my own version of a hazmat suit. And <laughs> but I, I've had to turn down gigs, you know. There's people that are braver than me that are playing, still playing out, and I've, I told them, I said, I just don't want to take the risk given my age. So I have, I've been fine, really. I've been uh, really blessed. I know it's very hard on a lot of people now. And uh, so um, I, I look for comedy now more than anything. I look for the funny. Because yeah. laughter really helps with this depressing situation our country's in at the moment. And, you know, we've been in crazy situations before you know if you look at history so i'm sure we'll come out of it um americans are strong that way but uh you know it'll be nice when the country kind of gets together again yeah let's say it's always darkest before the light right so now we're going to this sort of tough winter but there's a vaccine and hopefully 2021 get out there and get some live music going again I think that possibly, um, because everybody's been locked down and, and because there's no replacement for live music, um, I think when once things open up, I think there's going to be an amazing amount of live music uh, everywhere. And uh, that's what I'm hoping for anyway. Yeah. I'm hoping for like a, a rebirth, you know. And... Uh, Plus, we'll have a lot more ways to do it, too. You know, get, uh, we've been forced, everybody's been forced to use technology they're not used to, so that's becoming commonplace. So I think you have to look at the, I'd rather look at the glass half full. You know, mm -hmm. what's, what's good in my life? What's good about this? Rather than, you know, because the bad is on the news. I try not to watch the news too much. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you. Looking at the glass half full always... Um, and, uh, you know, the good thing about the, the technology, like you mentioned, is that when I first started doing this show, a lot of people weren't that comfortable with it. Now it's like, no big deal, just hop on the video chat and let's do it. So that's a good side for this show anyway. Yeah, I wish it was here 30 years earlier. I mean, um, because when I was, uh, I remember when I was working at Sugar Hill and the first drum machines came in, uh, you know, I was in fear for my job, so I very quickly got one and learned how to use it. But uh, once I got one, uh, the guitar player, Skip McDonald, that uh, was in the rhythm section with me, I looked at him, I said, you know, Skip, one, one day this whole studio is going to be in a box smaller than this drum machine. 
And I guess about 10 years ago, I went over and I brought a portable system Pro Tools, you know, and uh, to his house, and I was recording him on some stuff. And he goes, "Well, Keith, you got your box, didn't you? <laughs> you know, so he remembered, huh? Yeah, he remembered. Uh, thankfully, and I, I just uh, wish this technology was here quite a while ago because uh, I was being interviewed by this uh, some magazine. They were saying, "Gee, you must." You're, you know, because you're older, you must really hate the way people record now. And I said, no, actually, you know, um, I said, I love the technology. I can get up in the morning and anything I can imagine, I can try. And I don't have to leave home. And with unlimited time, there's no time restriction. Because back in the day, when you paid for studio time, even if the track wasn't working, you had to follow through and end up with what you ended up with you know because you had a budget and time restrictions but uh kind of hostage by the cost of it yes and you know you, that clock was always ticking in the back of your brain while you were in there and uh and it's much easier to go through borders with uh, a thumb drive than a two-inch tape you know so <laughs> yeah um so let's uh I want to talk about uh, that period you just mentioned for sure, but even a little before that, how did you uh, first get into drums? Um, I saw Ringo Starr on TV, and I immediately made a drum set out of coffee cans. And uh, my parents saw I had an interest for it, so they brought me a practice pad. And... Uh, I joined the orchestra at school, and, uh, you know, they said a practice pad, you know, you, you do lessons, maybe you get a drum. So I uh, joined orchestra at school, and there was a good drummer there, and he, he liked me, so he took me under his wing and showed me the stuff that he knew, and uh, then I, uh, I, uh, my father had a massive stereo. I mean, back back in the day, there was like a hi-fi nuts, like Lenny Bruce would say. You know, my father was a hi-fi nut. They, you used to have to build it if you wanted it. Mine was too, yeah. So he built this big one, and uh, I managed to get a snare drum, and I found a garbage, uh, a bass drum in someone's garbage, and I got a foot pedal, and I just started... Uh, playing along with records, you know, and uh, I loved it. I, I was kind of a weird kid, so I stayed in most of the time. Uh, I wasn't really good at sports because I didn't, you know, I, I didn't have that much interest in it. So I just played drums all day to my heart's content, you know. My neighbors would complain, but uh, not very often, and, uh, if they did, my mother would get her trumpet out and blow it into the phone, so they never called back. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, you know, and I just I just went from there, really. Um, I think I did my first gig, I was 14. They snuck me into the club. So I was always the youngest one in the band, and I was, I was lucky. I, um, I always seemed to play with musicians once I started playing with musicians that were better than me so I so I actually gravitated towards people that were much better than me 
and uh, I found that was a great help too. But that's how I started Ringo Starr. I saw the Beatles on TV, and I immediately focused in on the drums. I have, you know, and uh, just the sound of it and everything. And then when I saw the kid at school play a beat on the drums, you know, hearing it live killed me. I had to do it. <laughs> so, and you grew up in what city? Bristol, Connecticut. Okay, so which, not far which, from where you are. Yeah, which is lucky too because all the musicians from New York that were going to do a gig in Boston, they would play in Hartford, Connecticut, which is 20 minutes away. So I was able to see some blazing musicians the whole time I was coming up. And uh, that was handy. Because, <laughs> you know, I had the, the rural life, uh, neighborhood life, which was really good in the 60s. And uh, a lot of open space. And then I could see, you know, the best musicians in the world um, in, in the park in Hartford, in, in uh, Bushnell Park there. Um, so, and they had a club not too far where I was able to see Weather Report, Miles Davis, Billy, Co you know, Wesleyan University. They used to give a lot of concerts. I said, I think I saw Mahavishnu Orchestra's first gig, mm -hmm. you know, and they, they opened up for, um, uh, Billy Cobham was in a band, and he had just left the band and joined Ma Vishnu Orchestra. And I forget the name of the band. It was a big band at the time. And Ma Vishnu was opening up for him. And I remember John McLaughlin came out, and he goes, listen to the beautiful silence. And then all of a sudden, all hell broke loose, you know? And, like, watching Billy, you know, shred sticks, and there's just sawdust coming up everywhere. It was changed my life. <laughs> I was gone after that. You know, I was off. And at that time, there were so many great records coming out, you know. So, uh, yeah, the uh, golden age of fusion right there. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, it was a beautiful thing. <laughs> were you always uh, attracted to that? I mean, because for some people, it was too, you know, too challenging, you know, musically to get into. But you were open to it from the get-go? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, seeing Billy Cobham, you know, I was sitting next to several drummers, and they were just, you know, telling me, oh, I'll never play again. You know, I'm going to give this up. But it was inspiring. You know, you see somebody do what you're doing way better than the way you're doing it and taking it somewhere you hadn't even thought of. Um, it just made me want to learn it, learn it all. So, you know, I started picking apart Billy Cobham, and I and I really loved Jaco Pastorius as a bass player. That, uh, you know, that's one of my, bass and guitar are my two favorite instruments other than drums. I love keyboards, but, uh, you know, obviously a good bass player is uh, hard to find. <laughs> so Jaco really set the bar, you know, so guys that were good got a lot better quick quicker after um he came out so it was a great great period to uh to uh learn my craft during you know and uh even before that all the records that came out were basically all the stuff from muscle shoals and uh 
all the Motown stuff, you know, that was like pop music at the time. So it was great. It was a great time. So when did you first, you know, get into, you know, when you're first in a band context, you know, what type of material were you playing? Oh, gee. <clears throat> My very first band, I mean, you know, it was, we had battery-powered amplifiers and stuff. We were trying to do Stones tunes, and, uh, you know, and I was figuring out tunes for the guitar player, you know, because just, but the first real steady band that I played with was a, a little funk band called Little Jimmy and the Soul Testaments. And we used to play in the projects in Bristol. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I learned all the James Brown stuff because our singer really loved James Brown, you know, and the same hairdo and everything. And uh, then uh, I, I moved on from that to uh, several rock bands in high school. Um, you know, but they always played things like, uh, you know, we'd play Chicago or we'd play Led Zeppelin or, you know, uh, a little more challenging rock stuff. Yes. And, and uh, then I joined a fusion band, the whole fusion thing hit and did original music for quite a while. That didn't pay too good. So um, I started doing show band gigs you know where you travel around the country different hotels and you stay there for like a week and uh you know it was a way for me to keep from getting a straight job um and you know i had a place to stay i didn't have to make the bed and i got to play every night you know so that was cool and uh i did that for a while and then i i would when i was home i would practice all the time go to any jam sessions that I could find. And I went to this one jam session and uh, this guy, Harold Sargent came up to me. He said, I got just the guys for you to play with. And he gave me his drum chair in this band, Wood, Brass and Steel, which had done several records and these guys were all pros. And uh, so I got in that band and that led me right to Sugar Hill after that. And I started recording and learning how really that that experience recording for oh, it was about three or four years at Sugar Hill Records. I learned how to produce, you know, without even knowing it. And then when we left there, we had started Tackhead, and we just started using the studio as its own instrument, trying to push the envelope as far as we possibly could. So, with well, uh, Sugar Hill, um, who brought you in? Um. Harold Sargent, okay. uh, he's, he's probably one of the most sampled, he's dead now, died recently, um, but he's probably one of the most sampled drummers uh, around, other than Clive Stubblefield, for all the hip-hop stuff. And Harold had to leave the band, he had to find a replacement, so he got me in, and uh, I remember I did the audition, I brought a bass drum and a snare drum, hi-hat, one cymbal. And the guys really liked me, and we hit it off right away. So, um, and it was great for me because Doug Wimish and Skip McDonald have to be some of the funkiest human beings on the planet when it comes to. I mean, it was serious, very serious stuff. And uh, it was a big horn band, 
and these guys had already recorded, you know, and they talk about playing in New York. And so Sylvia Robinson called up Harold Sargent because she thought he was still in the band. And he said, well, they got a new drummer, but he's really good. So um, we went up there. Uh, Rapper's Delight had just come out, you know, and we went up there and we started recording the first first day we went up there. We started recording and uh, stayed there for quite a while. And we, you know, to me, uh, I was looking for anything new and different, you know, and um, rap music just seemed like a natural progression of funk music to me, and, or fusion music, because it was very improvisational, and uh, it was all drum-oriented, it was all rhythm, so I loved it, you know, I could... Uh, and, you know, I learned my craft. I was getting paid to learn how to record, really. And, uh, you know, if they asked me if I knew how to do something, I told them yes, even if I didn't. And I just went for it. <laughs> and uh, So that was a good experience, really was. Uh, now young people can do it. I mean, being able to hear yourself recorded is a great learning experience. Um, because you, you hear what works and you hear what doesn't work. And uh, nowadays, you know, young people can s set up that environment for themselves at home and get that experience where when I was doing it, you couldn't do that. So I was very lucky that I was thrown into that cauldron of uh, recording. And, uh, mm -hmm. And then after that, when uh, I hooked up with Adrian Sherwood, who's like mega producer, dub artist, you know, dances through frequencies like no nobody I've ever heard, uh, that just pushed the envelope even farther, you know, because um, I had done a rec, I had produced a record called No Sellout, which had spoken word on it, and Adrian was into much the same thing, so we hit it off like a house on fire and. I, I have to I have to say that that was a, a great record. I mean, I was a DJ at the time myself, and I remember getting that you know from my record pool, and uh, it was great. You know, um, well, well, it was a great experience because I got to meet Malcolm's wife, Betty Shabazz, and uh, you know I, I was able to make sure that she and the family got fifty percent of the record because that's how it's supposed to be split vocals and. Vocals 50%, music 50%. So, and that was really interesting. I, and I ended up in court with the record with Sugar Hill. They were trying to steal it, you know, because uh, I used their studio to record it. My partner on the project was Marshall Chess, um, whose father owned Chess Records. Mm -hmm. And he happened to be working at Sugar Hill at the time. And he gave me the demo budget, you know, to come up with the idea. Um, you know, see if it worked. And um, Joe owed him some money, so he said, let's use Sugar Hill Studios. And I didn't want to use Sugar Hill Studios because I just knew, by this time, I knew those people. You know, I knew how it would go down. And uh, so uh, when I finished the record, you know, I did it incognito while I was there. No one knew what I was doing. I wasn't signed to anything. No one paid me any attention. They just thought I was doing demos for Marshall, so paid it no attention. It was great. And I got away with it. And by the time 
the record came out, um, they had no, you know, Marshall Chess had played it for them, and I remember they they didn't know what to say to me, you know, because I wasn't signed to anything, you know, and I just could see the writing on the wall, so I got in touch with Betty Shabazz and told Marshall, I said, we need a different record company. I don't care how much Sugar Hill wants this record. It's, they're not going to pay Betty because I guess they had released some speech records of Malcolm X um, not long after he had been murdered, and uh, they never paid Betty for those records. So I already knew what was going on there. And uh, so we ended up doing it with Tommy Boy Records. And Joe Robinson sued Tommy Boy, and I ended up in New Jersey District Court, which was hilarious, but very interesting. Because <laughs> uh, the judge was the DA that investigated Malcolm X's death. Okay. He pulled the case when he saw it, you know, so it was fun, you know, because the guy knew that, didn't have to explain Malcolm X to him at all, so... And, and uh, he was, what's his name, uh, Judge Herbert J. Stern. And this judge, all the lawyers were like revered this guy, were scared to death of him. So I knew it was like a serious moment <laughs> in time. But luckily, you know, no one assassinated me and I got away with it, you know, and uh, opened a lot of doors for me, that record. Do you think that that uh, controversy helped or hurt the record? Um, it hurt the record because Joe killed it in the states. I mean, you know, we ended up giving Joe like one point on the record, just to settle out of court. And uh, you know, Tom Silverman, you know, he basically said that uh, no, everything's cool now. I said no, it isn't. Joe's going to kill the record. And, and Tommy said to me, he goes, well, why would he do that? He's got, he's making money from it. I said, it's way past money. You know, it's gone way past that. So Joe called all the radio stations and said, hey, man, these white boys are stealing our shit. Don't play it. Hmm. So the only place it really got played was in Europe or maybe on college radio in the states actually because of my exposure to it I, I thought it was a bigger hit in the u.s than it than it turned out to be just because yeah. to me it was a bigger hit <laughs> yeah well it was different because uh there were no samplers at the time so i did it with flying in tape It was all done with tape manipulation and uh samplers came out about eight months after that but uh, you know when i did that no one no one had thought of doing that and i think uh I met uh, the guy did the, did that record uh, nineteen. Uh, Paul Hardcastle. Yeah, Paul. And uh, I I was over in England doing a session for ABC, and they told me that Paul had told them, you know, they said, "How'd you come up with that idea for nineteen? He's and he said, "Oh, I was just trying to do a Keith LeBlanc thing." <laughs> and. Uh, so, you know, in all my productions, usually I, I get there first and then, but the first one never makes the money, <laughs> usually. It just gives other people ideas, you know, and someone will do it a lot more commercially. Happens to a lot of artists that push the envelope. Um, and I don't, um, I don't consciously try to push the envelope. It's just... 
I'm interested in certain sounds and I go for what I want to hear. And a lot of times it ends up being a little ahead of what's going on because I don't really track what's going on. I just do what I want to hear and, uh, and try to keep myself around like-minded people like that in you know, recording situations. So yeah, I always wanted to be uh, what I like. And if someone else likes it, great, you know, but that was, I, I was never one to, you know, I, I'm influenced by other people's things and I love other people's stuff, but I never just, you know, set out to like take a Beatles record and line it up in a sampler and take a, a bridge from one part, <laughs> chorus from another song, another Beatles song and, and make a new song out of it. Like, uh, oh, what was that band? Oasis. They did a lot of that. I think they should probably pay the Beatles some publishing. <laughs> and, um, you know, because, I don't know whether they physically did that, but they it sounded a lot like the Beatles to me. I was like too much like the Beatles. Yeah, where's where do you get past influence and toward something else? You know, mm. uh, infringement. But you know, <laughs> I wanted to ask you, Keith. You know, so you have pushed the envelope, and that's a tribute to you for sure. But, you know, how do you decide whether something is too much maybe for yourself personally versus whether others are going to get it? I'm, <clears throat> I've never really, uh, well, I just do things till I, I like them, till they feel good to me. And these days with the technology, I can throw 50 tries away before I get the one that I want. And uh, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I really don't. And I know that sounds horrible, but it's true. <laughs> I, you know, of course I want people to like what I do, but um, I'm not disappointed if they don't. I, I understand. I mean, the, the last real album I did, it was a combination of so many different styles that I had trouble getting any press on it. You know, they said, you know, they, it, it wasn't in a nice little box. Um, but uh, I have done things that have become in a nice little box that they just haven't come out yet. Uh, one of them is uh, a record I worked on for years with uh, Marshall Chess. I took all a lot of the old chess songs and redid them um, with uh, great players. And uh, I got Bernard Fowler to sing all the vocals. And it's just absolutely off the chain killing. I love it. And anybody that's heard it loves it. So hopefully, you know, we were supposed to have a summer release, but COVID hit and everything. So everything got pushed back. Um, but that will, will be coming out on BMG. Uh, when it does come out and uh, and it's all fits together perfectly you know and I think the first album I did um, which was called uh, uh, Major Malfunction everything fit together perfectly um, I stole uh, the Beatles technique of running one song into another song non-stop side and uh, and me and Adrian were doing all kinds of crazy things on that one in the studio. I'd like uh, 
take a tape and I'd have Adrian re uh, mix some beats of mine and I'd record them on a half inch tape and then I'd flip the tape over and run it back and then have Adrian record another beat of mine and I'd take it in and out of record in time I, like I, <laughs> and took a lot of I had people you know just come to my studio to ask me how I did that and things like that you know but it, um, it's a really fun time and I never you know sometimes things just came together and they all fit together nicely and uh, it the, a project will if you go in and you take that leap of faith a project will come up with its own name um, all the titles will rise to the top and you'll know what fits and at the end of the day it sounds like you planned it all that way and, uh, but really all I'm doing is just throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks but fortunately for me I want I want uh, viewers to know that that came on 86 um, you know in case they want to look for it major malfunction and um, that track move was a highlight uh, for me on that one that was a track that Al Jorgensen threw away he didn't like it I, I programmed that for him on Fairlight and uh, he, he said oh, I hate this track you know because we were trying to do some stuff for us he was doing an album for twitch I think the album was called twitch and uh, ministry was the name of the group and he didn't like the he didn't like uh, the um, the track he had he had done the keyboard part you know that very recognizable lovely keyboard part and he said I don't like the track and I said well can can I you know can we have it he goes yeah you know so uh, when I put it on major bell function I, I didn't use the whole track I just used bits of it um, I called up Al I said well you know how do you want me to credit you on the album he said call me dog <laughs> so if you look on the album, the keyboard is by Dog. <laughs> you know, later on he called me. He said, "Why did you call me Dog on the album?" I said, "Cause you asked me to, brother." You know what he? <laughs> but uh, he was a crazy boy. I loved Al. He's he's out of his mind. But uh, yeah, we were trying everything to make tracks for him for that album, and he hated everything we were doing. You know, so we ended up with a few tracks off of that. But I love that track. I think it was one of the best things Al's ever done, you know, as far as concept, the, the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, that he was doing. And uh, the sound of the Fairlight is pretty interesting, you know, for what it was at the time. Very uh, unlike the Synclavier, which was the only other sampling keyboard at the time, it was uh, dirty. You know, it had a dirty sound, almost like, you know, a heavy metal guitar. So More of an industrial quality yeah, yeah yeah and and then if you've got someone like Adrian Sherwood mixing this stuff right you know I'm when I first met Adrian you know I it really took me a while to get to use to the frequencies he, he was using you know because I never heard lows bottom so so low in my life I never heard tops so high in my life and everything in between and he was actually able to move things in your audio sphere with just EQ 
He's an amazing guy on the mixing desk. He plays it like an instrument, you know. So I've been fortunate to work with a lot of great people, you know, and have access to great musicians. And uh, so, um, what 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 would you say uh, makes uh, Doug so special on bass? Mm. Well, he really knows how to record. You know, he started out recording with Woodbrass of Steel at All Platinum years before I met him. And when I met him, you know, he was like the perfect bass player for me. That's what I thought. And um, But what makes him special is he'll play like a producer in the studio when he's recording something. Like a lot of those lyrical lines, those lyrical bass lines on those Chevrolet records, just out of his head, he there would be room, and he would put in an added line, and uh, so he played really musically, and the sound he got out of his bass because it's very hard to get a clean bass recording. It takes a lot of technique to play a bass clean in the studio because you hear everything you know you might have a great bass player on a gig you know sounds great you get in the studio and you hear all this garbage you know and it's um as well as the bass so the fact that he really knew how to record and uh he always approached everything really musically and did the best thing for the track i think that's what i love about him the most not to mention it. I mean, you wouldn't know it hearing them with living color, but Doug can play the serious funk on that bass. And he can play jazz. He can play a lot of stuff. Um, but most people that know him probably haven't heard him uh, do do that type of thing very often. Yeah, we can definitely hear it through Tackhead and the Sugar Hill stuff. Yeah, but he can stretch way farther than that, and that's I, I don't, I think if he couldn't, um, you know, both Skip McDonald and Doug Wimish both could play any kind of music because they wanted to be session musicians. So that's what I loved about that combination. Uh, there were no holes barred, no stretch too far. Um, and uh, if you approach everything musically, and play for the music, you can hang in any kind of situation, any musical situation. So uh, that's that's the main reason, just uh, no ego, just playing real music. Uh, I, I definitely need the viewers to, to realize that you guys, you know, played The Message and White Lines, right? And um, yeah, I did a hi hat overdub on White Lines, but that was mostly Reggie Griffin. And uh, Reggie Griffin put together a lot of the message along with Ed Fletcher, the percussionist. And Doug and Skip played on the message, but I didn't play on that. Uh, okay. Did, did you I guys left Sugar Hill by then? Did you guys ever uh, play live <laughs> at all, or was it purely studio with Sugar Hill? Um, we played live all the time with Sugar Hill. Okay. Um, and I learned a lot doing that. Um, we played with all of the best bands of the time, you know, uh, you know, Roger Trotman, Fazo, um, uh, Cool in the Gang, 
war. Um, uh, we opened up for Parliament Funkadelic for about six or eight months, something like that. Got along really good with those guys. And uh, Cameo. Um, we even uh, we even did a. I didn't know it, but we when I, later on when I uh, when we started doing Tackhead, um, every time we put out a record, Prince would come out with a record. They had like the exact same beat I had put on a record. You know, I'm, I'm real real close. You know, and it, this happened quite a few times. And uh, we did our first. Uh, run of gigs in the states with Tackhead. We got booked in um, this club, and uh, it was. Uh, we were told that Prince was going to be there, and uh, you know we played the gig, and there was no one in the place. It's like a big white building, you know, and big auditorium and everything. And <clears throat> there's like two people in there. The staff. You know, and they were saying all day long, Prince is going to be here, Prince is going to be here, and no one's there. Um, and after Prince died, I saw a picture of his house, and that was the place we played. We thought it was a club. And uh, I was playing, you know, we're playing, and I'm, I've got, I'm running a drum machine, so usually it was maybe a hi-hat or maybe some sequence tom-toms, you know. So we'd be in at a, a steady tempo so Adrian could dub it with, and he could set all his delays and everything. And so, you know, I'm playing and my monitor goes off. And I have some headphones, you know, in case that happened. So, I, you know, I'm playing with one hand, I reach for the headphones and I just get it to my ear and the monitor comes back on, you know. So that happened about five times in a row. <laughs> and... Uh, then the last time it happened, the monitor came back, and then this voice came out of nowhere. It didn't come out of the monitor. It didn't come out out front speakers, like somewhere in the back of the stage. And it, and it was Prince. And he goes, what's the matter? Can't you keep time? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think I didn't even know it, but I think I was auditioning for Prince. I mean, he booked us in his, his house. What year and, is this? Um, this is... This is uh, 80s. Got to be like 86, 87, something like that. And um, I didn't know it was his house till you know, he died and they were showing his house all over the news. But, you know, you figure, you know, the guy was hooked in. He had everything hooked up and he had a, a, a club in his house, you know, with a stage and everything, you know. So we wouldn't have known it wasn't a club. They just had us pull up to the back. And we went in, stayed in the dressing room until it was time to play. So I failed my Prince audition. <laughs> I, I think I think that's where he did stuff before Paisley Park opened, right? Um, possibly, possibly. I, so. I mean, I remember it was, you know, uh, it just looked like a, a regular club. And all day long, people were telling us Prince was going to be there. And they were right. He was there. He was just watching from a camera somewhere in some little room. You know, because guy like that definitely had everything wired, you know, <laughs> and had the money to do it back then. So, you, you know, when I was listening, uh, one track in particular reminds me of a Prince track, and that is uh, Kill the Devil, which um, the rhythm to that sounds a lot like the future that he did for the Batman soundtrack. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> um, 
I mean, I liked Prince's stuff because, well, I, I would, I would check it because most of his albums I didn't like a lot of songs on them, but he would always have one killer that just killed me, you know, uh, um, and uh, I would always look for that killer, you know. A lot of the other stuff might have been a little too flowery, you know, and out there, but he always had a few killers on the albums, and I think that's, you know, that's what a lot of people looked for, you know, just so in your face, uh, and I don't know how he could, you know, his persona and everything, that that's a whole other thing. I mean, I'm, I'm not brave enough to do that. And <laughs> you're talking about a fearless man here, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's funny, uh, Keith. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.